Today's episode is brought to you by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Omco Bank and hosted by Suchin Pak, download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. And by FreshBooks, small business owners. FreshBooks wants to make dealing with your day-to-day paperwork ridiculously simple and quick. For your free 30-day trial and all the simple and quick cloud accounting you can handle, go to freshbooks.com forward slash moment and enter moment in the how did you hear about us section. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is the novelist Alan First. There are not many authors who've written as many books as Mr. First, about whom I can say I have read all of them, but I can. I've read all 12 of the books that you've written, starting in when did you publish the first of these? Um, The first of them was Night Soldiers, and I believe it was the late 80s when I published it. And I probably, um, the first one I read, I think, was uh, World at Night. Right. uh, About Jean Cassin. And then I went back, caught up, and now have read all, including your most recent book, which is A Hero of France. Thanks so much for being here and, and oh, talking to us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm excited and a little bit nervous about this because I want to do this work justice because I saw that you said this in some interview somewhere or in some bio, but I do think it's true that you've been in, essentially at work creating one fictional world all this time. That's correct. That's true. And that's a, a, a rare... It's select group. It's select company to be in. William Kennedy does much the same with Albany. It's true. Faulkner did it. Yeah, of course, Faulkner did it. And not many people have tunneled as deep and then just stayed there and continued to tunnel in. And it seems to me it would take a tremendous amount of of grit and a continued restoking of the imagination to do it. Or to be a crazy person like me. Because when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, I had basketball leagues. I had all the players' names, their colleges, their weights, their average. I mean, I'm just nuts about the way people assort in formal groups. And, and the formal groups that I was interested in at the time were these leagues. And sometimes I would play games, board games. Of was this uh, Dick kinds. McGuire and Red Holzman days? It, yeah, it, and, and, yeah it, it basically was. Those old New York Knicks teams of the New early York 60s. Knicks, right, that, that took set shots from the chest with two hands. Right. Um, well, perhaps this is why there's a, a long-distance kinship between us through the years, be, because although I'm younger than you are, the Knicks teams of the early 70s remain a gigantic cornerstone the of best. my life. I know the best. I could still name all the players right. and tell you what their proclivities right. on the court were. right. It's a particular kind of obsession, the, the, the Knicks and the It's a New York basketball. thing. No, it isn't. It's true in Chicago and L.A. It's always where people like love sports, they love sports. But you're saying something deeper was happening for you, which is you were somehow sorting them, resorting them, and wholly kind of imagining the world in which they existed. Well, I, you know, I don't want to claim kinship with William Faulkner. He's a great American writer. I am who I am. However, when I read his books, I see him doing the same thing. He's got this fictive universe, and he keeps putting interesting people into it. No doubt, some of the characters in his books are 
sketches of people he, he knew down there. But what this is really about is a time and a place and the people who lived in that time and place. And he's exquisite Well, these connections in your books are incredibly clear. I mean, it's funny that I love them. And these books are mostly set in France, but they're in Europe during World War II, the onset of World War II. They deal with resistance fighters very uh, often, and often people from the middle or upper classes who could make a choice not to become involved and who become involved anyway. That's correct. At great risk to themselves, and even while knowing that it's a fool's errand in all likelihood. That's correct. And in the new book, right away, the the character who's the most central figure in the new book appears in an earlier book. I mean, Matthew does show up in an earlier book. The name, maybe... The name, no, no. He he is in A World at Night. The name Matthew was mentioned as a figure in the resistance. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. I didn't really do that on purpose. But you did do it. I could show you the pages. No, no, you've caught me. I'm nailed officially. (laughs) So that was an accident? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I don't have that much grip over it. You know, I must have created 800 characters in writing these 14 books. That's a lot of characters. People sometimes ask me about somebody. I'm going, who is that? (laughs) You know, I don't remember such a person if they're not a lead character. But sometimes people will become very interested in a minor character. And I take that for a very good thing. Right, like the owner in the new book of the burlesque burlesque Oh, uh, Max the Lion. Yes. Who could appear in other books as well. He could. You can feel that. I have him originally as an arms dealer, which made me very unhappy because I did some research. Arms dealers were dreadful, terrible people, really. So what I had DeLion do was sell that business or get out of it and become Rick. Yes, from Casablanca. From Casablanca. In other words, he owns, he's this very uh, sort of cynical guy who owns a nightclub, but he's a very tough guy. And the resistance sort of swirls around him. And he, he's always of use, and he's always right. He's the one who tells Matthew, if you don't get rid of this teenager, he will destroy you. I shouldn't give this away. but um, Well, you're not giving too much away, because like some of the great writers, although the plot in these books is really important, and the plot does bring the re- reader through, in another way, the plot becomes incidental to what... To me, it is. And you feel it in a really great way in these books. You don't feel it out of laziness. You feel it uh, out of a choice to allow the reader to go down tributaries of character and theme and idea. That's what I love to do. When I read a book where the author says, now be careful, you have to remember that on November 13th, Polly visited the hotel. And if you don't remember that, this book will not, you will not like this book. I can't stand that kind of writing. I think that's terrible. It's show-off writing. It's look how smart I am writing. I don't do that. What I like to do is sketch. I like to sketch characters with a few words or a few paragraphs or a few chapters. I love bringing characters to life. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Open Account. How much money do you make? How big is your savings account? These are some of the most personal and maybe uncomfortable questions someone can ask you. But where does that discomfort come from? On Open Account, a podcast created by Umqua Bank, host Suchin Pak and her guests get open and honest about making, losing, and living with money. You'll hear an NBA star talk about his first professional paycheck, a Daily Show producer recall his parents' penny pinching, 
and a husband and wife duo discuss the role that marriage plays in managing their small business. And that's just the first three episodes. These conversations wind up being about way more than dollars. They're about culture, power, class, and the complex emotions that drive our financial decisions. Open Account is available wherever you get your podcasts. So download, subscribe, and get a little more comfortable with your money. I want to sort of just back up for a second, because what I think is fascinating, a lot of people listening to the show are people who are trying to become the best version of themselves in the work that they do. Often it's creative work, or it's trying to be their most creative selves in, in the work that they do. And your story, I find so inspirational, because success came to you late. Yes. And you went off, you knew you were going to be a writer at a certain point, but you went off in a direction that wasn't satisfying to you. So could you talk a little bit about that path? Could you walk me through the way in which you became a writer? Like what the path was to the first books, how that experience was bad in the right way for you and how that led you to find your true voice? I, I was always a writer. I wrote for the PS9 at 82nd and West End Avenue, a story about a parade, a ticker tape parade for General MacArthur. I believe that was my first published work. The magazine was called the John Jasper Journal because that place is called the John Jasper School. It's a very old Dutch building. And I was a writer then. I was a writer in prep school. I had a column in the, uh, the Horace Mann Record, which uh, edited by Robert Cairo, whoa, you know, and, 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 and all of that. However, for a long time, I didn't have any success. I wrote pot boilers. Nobody liked them. I don't think I liked them, but I had no moral purpose in writing them. I didn't, they were like show off books. Peter Davidson from Little Brown. I met him at about the only writer's workshop I ever attended, as a teacher, I should say. And he said, we read these books and we didn't buy them. Would you like to know why? And I said, yes, why? He said, would you really like to know? Wow. I said, yes. He said, we thought they were the smartest ass thing we'd ever read in our lives. And he was absolutely right about it. Um, How many books? Was this two books? Four. Four books Your day, that were published. They were published by Athenaeum and by uh, Delacorte Dell and Doubleday. So they I were, brought them up to you before we sat down here because I haven't read those books. I've only read, the, I guess, 14 in, the, in this series of better, books. Better not. And that's really, what you said. Better not. Don't bother. But I will say this. At a certain point in the period of these books and following, I looked in the mirror and I said, Alan, are you willing to live your life as a failed novelist? And I said, I think so, yeah. Yes. It was a very, very hard question to ask, and it was a very hard question to answer because the possibility was fully there. And I could see myself at a dinner party or wherever else telling people that I was trying to be a novelist but that I hadn't had very much success, but I wasn't giving up. Then, fortuitously, Esquire magazine sent me to the Soviet Union in 1983 on the night, I landed on the night when they shot down the Korean airliner and the Russians in Moscow were looking at the sky because they thought rockets were coming over. They really believed that. And what I later said to myself was, here's what's happened here. I have never seen a police state, ever. I never knew what it, I knew the words, but I didn't know what it felt like. Right. Do you know how a, tra a cop stops a car in Moscow? 
He stands on, the cop stands on the street and uses his baton or nightstick and he points at the car. The car stops. It doesn't come to the curb. It stops. The driver gets out. He leaves his car there and walks over to the officer to find out what he may want. And again and again and again, it was like that. And I thought, these poor people, and you could see it. They all had dark circles under their eyes from trying to live in a social situation where the government said, what, did you, what have you done for me today? What are you going to do for me tomorrow? And if you don't do enough, you're in really grave difficulties because we are the people here who say everything and do everything. What were you sent over there to do by Esquire? I had, I was going, and I did, write what I called a political travel piece about the Danube River, which goes from the Danube Delta in Romania, where there's like a million birds, all the way up past Bucharest, um, through Belgrade, and then I think into Hungary, and it goes, wanders up Hungary, across the great Pushta, the great plain of Hungary, and eventually it gets to Budapest, which is a fabulous city, a fabulous But you city. were there to write this piece. You were there to write yeah. this piece. Right. It was a Russian river cruiser. It turns and goes into Yugoslavia, at, at, at Czechoslovakia, excuse me, at Bratislava. And at Bratislava, when my ship went there, there had been some fugitive who got through the wire and the ship was sweeping its searchlight across the water looking for this poor wretch. And eventually it goes to Vienna. It's got more history than anything else. I, I haven't know read in this piece. Whole... I've never seen the piece. I have to find it. Is it available anywhere? I don't know. I don't know. I, I will we'll sit... look for it and try to put it in the show notes if we can find oh, it. Oh, it would be just great. I don't remember when it was. I do remember that Esquire had some thoughts about not running it because it wasn't enough of a travel piece. There was too much politics in it and the feeling of politics and my anger on behalf of these poor people. If you, you know, that's really what you feel at the end of the day. It's what you feel looking at the news now. The poor people who are crushed by historical events that sweep over them. Who feels differently than this? I can't think of anyone. I agree. And the, this moral purpose, so is this what awakened? Yes. Because when, when you said to yourself, am I willing to be a failed novelist? That could lead in a couple of different directions for somebody. But did it make you then reevaluate the kind? Is that what made you then say, well, if I'm going to be a failed novelist, I have to find the kind of book I want to write? Or no. in other words, how did that? No, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Somebody made me mad. Um, Who and how? Uh, on the 3rd of September, 1983, I believe, they shot down Korean airliner 007. There were Americans on board. My wife and I sort of knew one of these people. She was from Bainbridge Island. She had a fabric company. She had gone to Korea to buy fabric. She's dead. She was shot, killed, murdered. So the people in the street were looking over their shoulder, the Muscovites, to see the rockets come in. Well, the rockets didn't come in. About a week later, I went down to um, Simferopol or Yalta, one of those ports, where I was going to take a Russian freighter across the Black Sea to the Danube Delta in Romania, and from there proceed upriver. So when I got to the dock, there's like 400 Russians there. I'm going, what are these people doing here? Why? They can't take this boat. And I thought, this must be a silent apology 
this is really dumb, I think. But 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 that's that's what I <laughs> well, thought. Well, humans the time. try to give ourselves a narrative right. that makes sense, and I to, to give ourselves to find understanding. A Why were those people yeah. just standing there? It turns out it wasn't actually a silent apology. I guess not, because I climbed up the gangplank. I reached the top. I looked back down at the crowd at these white faces looking up at me, and I flipped them the peace sign. And the next thing I knew, I was hanging on the chains between the top of the gangplank and looking down into the Black Sea, where I did not want to... I'd been swimming in it, and it was very, very greasy and oily. It was barely water. I didn't want to go down there. So I struggled back to my feet, and here was a guy wearing a hat that said purser. He's a Russian guy. And he said, oh, I'm so terribly sorry. And I thought, okay. I'm going to fuck you, and I'm going to fuck you good. Just wait till I get back to my typewriter. I'm going <laughs> I'm gonna to fix. I'm going to fix you up just fine. When I got back to the United States, the plane I was on landed at L- L.A. Airport because I was living in Seattle and out on the tarmac. And I came down the stairs. I got down on my hands and knees and kissed the ground. And I don't mean I kissed my fingers or anything. You kissed the fucking I ground. I kissed the ground. And uh, my wife later said, I sent my husband to Russia. They sent back somebody different. I sat down and wrote. By then we were living in Paris. I wrote like a bandit. And I'm, I'm, I write the first three pages, sitting in the corner of this apartment in the Marais. So and you had moved. You we came had home moved, and then moved to Paris. We had moved to Paris. And I thought, how do I know all this stuff? Where is this coming from? I don't know anything about this. It's about Bulgaria in 1934. And then a voice inside me says, who cares? Keep writing. <laughs> and, th- and that's been true ever since. And did you know you were writing a different kind of book than any you'd written before? Oh. Did you know you weren't showing off? Oh, or- oh, no. I was writing from the heart, man. I was throwing punches. And that's the only way to do this kind of work. That's the only way. It's Hemingway who, who likened writing to fighting or boxing. It, it, you, you do that. I mean, that's kind of the way it is. And um, I knew what I wanted to do. I kept reading. I had wanted to find earlier, I thought, the 30s is a really interesting time. I'd like to find a panoramic spy novel about the 30s. But I couldn't find one. Because that was when you were looking at it as an inter- – you were intellectually trying to right. find something right. and calculate it. But right. it was when you actually – Forgot about that calculation that you found it. Right. Well, I couldn't. I never found it. What I decided to do was write it. Yes. (laughs) Where I got the arrogance to do that, I don't know, but I didn't care. You know, when you you get to an emotional point with something like writing, you're just going to write what's in your heart. And that's what I did. And that turned out to be a success. Not immediately, not overnight, but in time, yes. Well, but it was an an artistic success from the beginning. In other words... You, this is what I'm trying to get at, that you, you had gotten to this point, four books that you didn't really love. You'd written four books that you didn't love. Yes. Which is uh, um, amazing um, persistence, actually, that you would continue on, <laughs> even though you knew, and that's it really, you know, you knew, I, I haven't nailed this, I'm not really writing from the true place. And then somehow you cracked something and you cracked because of this experience you had. Right. You had this acceptance of, if I never become famous, that's okay. I better just do the thing I was born to do, finally. That is the answer to all of this. Don't think about it. If you want to do it, 
you better do it. And that thing was a good 800 pages in manuscript. That's a big book. I worked on that book for a long time. And at the time, I thought, I can't really write a novel. And I know that. What I can write, though, is a novella. And if I take four novellas and put them together, I'll have a book. And I'll call them chapters. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly how it And were you under a deal at that time? No. That book took forever to get published. Forever. So I couldn't. You, you finished it. What'd you do? What happened? My, I had an agent at the time, not the agent I have now. And she attempted to sell it to this one, that one, the other one. Finally, it was bought by Roby McCauley, the great Roby McCauley, who started the Kenyan Review and who was the fiction editor at Playboy when they had great short stories in the 60s. You know, aside from the pictures in Playboy. No, I remember the story. I remember reading, going back and reading a bunch of those stories. And they kept through the 70s putting stories yeah. in the magazine. Anyhow, that was Roby. Yeah. And by then he was older and he was an editor at uh, Houghton Mifflin. And then he retired. And the second book I wrote for them, which was called Dark Star, was edited by Joe Cannon. Now, I, a novelist. Right. Well, that's a, those, I mean, that's a great one-two punch, those two books. Yeah. And did you, so you knew you finished that book, you get it published, you know, you found your voice finally. Right. Because a lot of what this is about is the voice. That's right. The voice, because it is, the thing we're talking about that's the same in these books isn't only the setting. Right. It's not only the world, it's this voice that you found, which is this world-weary, conspiratorial, but still somehow uh, it's wise and cynical, but still there's hope, a little bit of hope for humanity in it. And you'd found that voice in the first book That's somehow. true. That's true. And were you worried that you wouldn't be able to keep it for the, for the next book? How long until you got the idea and started the next one? Almost immediately, because I had been reading the whole time. Right. And, uh, nonfiction or fiction? Nonfiction. I don't read fiction, almost never. I read fiction of the period sometimes. You've read, yeah, you read Ambler, you read right. Graham Greene, you right. read all that stuff. Right, I read Ilya Ehrenberg's novel about the fall of Paris. I mean, I'm deep into this stuff, and I, I know all these books, and I've read all these books that no one else reads. For a long time, when I was living in Paris, I was reading out of the American Library in Paris, which is a private library in Paris, started for American officers in World War I. So it's a very political collection in there, and you could get into the stacks. This was not computers. This right. was like you go and look at books. I knew I was working on the Dewey Decimal System. Well, I, I mean, I remember that too. What made you go to Paris? You go to Russia, you have this experience, right. you come uh, home. We, we, How do you decide I'm moving to Paris when you're a New Yorker? We, we, were, we, were, we have been living in a place called Bainbridge Island, Washington, which is a 45-minute ferry ride from Seattle, and we were bored. And I said, let's just do something different. And I had written a uh, – talk about a potboiler. I had written uh, a biography of Debbie Fields, the cookie lady. Sure, Mrs. Fields. And that is the money that took us to Paris. I have to get the Debbie Fields book now. Oh, it's, Because I want to be a, a I completist. I, I, I need to I didn't be write Alan. any of it. I wrote the book. I and they rewrote it. And, and an editor there not only rewrote it, but rewrote it so much better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't Fantastic. believe it. That's awesome. So that got you to be able to go to Paris. That, were you then yeah, that gave us the money the to go to Paris. We got established there, and, all, and then all kinds of good things happened to us. So 
It turned out to be a good place for us to you live. You mean you started, you discovered your subject. What well, are the good... that plus my wife started working at a really good job and this happened and that happened and suddenly it was like the astrology had turned around. Right. You did end up in this place that became largely the thing you ended up writing about a lot. Yeah. The place being the Hotel Particulier where Edouard the spy hides out in um, A Hero of France. This episode of The Moment is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Small business owners, FreshBooks wants to make dealing with your day-to-day paperwork ridiculously simple and quick. How simple? How quick? How about using FreshBooks to create a perfectly crafted invoice in under 30 seconds, then setting yourself up to receive online payments with one click, and then magically being able to see whether or not your client has looked at the invoice you've just emailed. For your free 30-day trial and all the simple and quick cloud accounting you can handle, go to freshbooks.com forward slash moment and enter moment in the how did you hear about us section. And did you know then, or how did you start to think about the idea that's in all these books of uh, this certain kind of, of heroism, which to me is real heroism by choice? Well, I mean, a few of your books, somebody gets, you know, um, sort of ensnared into it. I mean, in this book, in A Hero of France, there is a moment where our hero has to decide if he's going to go deeper in, knowing that will mean someone will have their hooks in him, but he still makes the choice. And there's this, as I say, there's this fatalism. Often uh, hero stories have the possibility of real victory at the end of them. Your books, because they're not uh, celebrating the very end of the war, by definition only have a temporary victory as a possibility. Um, A small win against um, the incredible likelihood of overwhelming loss. So, so how did you start thinking about that, and why is that continue to be so animating for you? Well, you have to start thinking about yourself, and you have to start thinking about the people you know, because if you get into this, you are potentially having an effect on your family, on your wife, on your children. They did not kid around, these people, the Germans. You're saying if you get into the resistance, yeah. if you decide to uh, join the... Right, if you join in, they're going to come after you. So the, so the first thing you do is you burn your address book. Think about it. Think about burning up or deleting every reference to every person you've ever known. Well, there's a wonderful... Um, Use the word meta at the beginning of this before we were on the the microphones. And and there is a wonderful element in the new book where Matthew goes back and forth. There are a couple of moments where his old life peaks out. In right. other words, the life before the resistance. Right. And in a way, when he's in the resistance, he is in the sort of dreamlike state that an artist has to get in. That's correct. He's dived into this world, and it's the only world that exists for him. But then suddenly the real world, that other world, the world he's left, the mortal, the world of mortals right. interferes. And right. I find that to be um, often in these kind of works, uh, the character who's willing to sacrifice condescends to those that don't. But it seems in the world of your books, there's this great understanding. And that's part of what's the grounding in them. There's this great understanding that that was a choice that was kind of like okay to make, to understand, not okay to make, but understandable. Yeah. And, and that's a really interesting, subtle difference, I think. And in, in it creates this sense of reality. At the same time, it's got this hyper-reality. But it, it creates this sense of 
these people had real lives and it was very hard to leave them. That's right. Everybody has a real life, whether they're happy about it or not. But if you decide to gamble in this way to become at least in someone else's eyes a criminal, and those people in the resistance were known as terrorists. Yes, they were. And that's where the, I think some of the early uses of the word come in. Um, you better not get, don't get caught. And, and if you do, try to wriggle out of it. I mean, when I read, you have to remember, I read books and books and books and books about people in the resistance <laughs> and um, what became of them and what happened to them. So a lot of what's in that book is true. As in all my books, I can't write, I can't make up plots. I can't do that. Well, yeah, I was trying to picture how you came. The, the, the idea in the new book is that the British are flying sorties over France. Right, they were. Uh, they're bombing. They when were. the pilots occasionally get shot down, right. part a, a branch of the resistance was charged with uh, finding them and getting them out. A branch out. in the resistance decided to get them out, and this was the first part of the French resistance. It was the beginning. And it was academics, college professors who didn't last very long, and it was a lot of upper-middle-class people. In some instances, they knew each other and they were pals. They'd been going to each other's houses for dinner. Now you have to sit down and say, do I really trust this guy? He has always made too much of, you know, a thing with my wife, and I'm not sure I really like him, and he works in a job I don't respect. Am I going to trust him with my life? Well, yeah, there's this incredible scene late in the book, and I won't give it away, but where our, our hero and a woman are at the sort of country home of these people who are really part of the firmament of upper crust uh, France. Right. And these people get enlisted, and uh, the upper crusters get enlisted in helping. And it, it really dramatizes the the difficulty. They all put on this brave face, and it's an incredibly charitable look in, in you know, from you at those who came to it late, who were actually frightened, who considered not doing sure. it. And I'm, I'm wondering, have you, how much thought you, you give to those kind of people in those oh, positions oh. and how much actual empathy you have for them? Well, you have to have empathy for them because these are the people who had their lives made before 1940. Believe me, they had it all. They had the restaurants. They had the gorgeous women, gorgeous men for the women. They had the suits. They had the clothes. They had the cars. They had everything. Yeah, I always picture Camus. I always picture all your characters to look like Camus somehow, the lead character. Sure. Uh, you picture it with the cigarette and the suit and just well, walking that effect, around. Well, had an effect on me. I had I had the stranger when I was a teenager, and so did you. Yeah. I can see him with the <laughs> hanging out of the corner of his mouth. That's just what I picture is that the picture of Camus on the back of those book of those books. Right. It's a very strong sort of a intellectual Parisian. Yes. Yes. Whereas Sartre was not anywhere near that strong. Camus was really ready to fight, as was as was uh, uh, waiting for Godot. Uh, Beckett. Beckett, who, who was in the resistance. He he says, well, it really wasn't anything. It was like ple being a Boy Scout again. No, it wasn't like being a Boy Scout. I mean, the best again. side fact about Beckett is that he drove Andre the Giant, the wrestler, to school every day. No, I didn't even know that. Oh, you yes. 
when Andre the Giant was a kid, Beckett was the only person with a car big enough in the, in, in the country near him. And he would pick up Andre every day. Oh, that's wonderful. And bring him to school. Oh, and they were wonderful. great friends. Oh, that's and Andre wonderful. the Giant talked about it for the rest of his. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, yeah. You got to read about that. I that's mean, it's wonderful. right up your alley. To but, but Camus really did. I mean, he published The Stranger in 43. It wasn't um, the new France that that read this book. It was the old France. It was occupied France. I didn't realize he published it in occupied France. Yeah, he did. And in fact, in The World at Night, Jean Casson considers buying the rights to the film in order to use the name L'Etranger. Well, that's a great little touch. And certainly in that book, World at Night, which is, as I say, the way that I first found your work... uh, and has one of my favorite characters in all of fiction. And interestingly, you said before that that you never thought of writing more books about him. But I'd uh, you did do one more about him, Red Gold. But and maybe it's because I'm in the movie business. But there's something about when you talk about someone who's had it all. In a way, he encapsulates this idea. And which is the book that starts? I just forgot the name of it right now. With the tennis being played, that woman who plays tennis. You're at there. Oh, uh, that's uh, uh, the Spies of Warsaw. Yes, and Spies of Warsaw too. Uh, there's this certain kind of person who, and, and I guess this comes this idea of heroism for me, which is people who we would look at French people in the upper class and assume that they just rolled over. Some movie producer in France was never going to help because he was connected to the highest levels of society. You make it really clear in these books that they have the opportunity to inform, to hang out, to barely inform, and they could still thrive sure. in france if they wanted to in france they could in poland they couldn't in greece they couldn't and in italy they couldn't but in france they could in and you're france drawn they... back to france very often in these books hitler craved french approval he loved the french he wanted them on his side which was foolish because it opened the door the first two years, 1940 and 1941, for them to do all this resistance. Yeah, well, I learned something in this book, which I didn't know, which was how long he kept the SS out. Yeah, I did. Before he allowed the SS to really take over trying to crush the resistance. I just didn't, as a uh, typical American, I just haven't read enough world history. Right, no, well, that's Uh, what I special... No, I mean, I just haven't read enough world history to really understand that, in fact, there were two years there where they were able to get their hooks in before the SS came to try to stop them. There were other lesser arms of military police right. trying to right. stop right. them. Right, It was successive, and it wasn't the Gestapo at the beginning. And, you know, Hitler wanted the French to like him, and they wanted... He, he, he wanted them to be his ally, officially ally. That He wanted Vichy to declare war on the UK and later on the United States. But it created this incredible um, fertile ground for the resistance to take hold. Sure. And, and if you know anything about France, one of the things they do is complicate matters. I mean, sure. they can yeah. screw something up in such an elaborate way that nobody's ever going to be able to untangle it. It's a, a talent. Do they recognize your work there? Do they oh, recognize yeah. themselves in it? 
I don't know what they think about it. I have a great, or how to, I mean, he's not publishing anything at the moment, but I had a great French editor, Olivier Cohen, who is in charge of uh, Edition Olivier. I think they published four or five books, including a translation of um, Night Soldiers. Right. And so you go over there and you feel that you're, they, they get the book. I, I haven't been over there for a while. I must admit to you, if you're going to ask me. Why? I, I'm, I'm, I saw what I saw. It's huh. changed a lot. Fascinating. Uh, you want to keep it in your imagination. Yeah, I want the France that I knew from reading in the past and from being there in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I don't want what's there now. What a fascinating choice as an artist to keep hold of that idea so that you can do your work. Oh, yeah. It's, very, it's changed a, a huge amount. I don't know what's going to become of them. They've suffered terribly from terrorism and from their own xenophobia. I will tell you they, they are not really going to allow Islamic people who live in Paris to integrate with them. They don't want them. The French are xenophobic as hell. I'll tell you one story if we have time. We have all the time you need. Um, when I was living in Saumur, I was a Fulbright teaching fellow in 69, 70. We had a friend named Edwin Hackney who was from a college in Kentucky uh, from the French department. And um, he got a converted garage to live in. He had no money. He had a converted garage, and he referred to the woman who rented it to him as Madame. And Madame was this, Madame was that, and one day Madame was really angry because her daughter was going to marry an étranger. Well, we speculated about who was the age, you know, étranger. Was it was it somebody from Senegal? Was it this kind of person? Was it that kind of person? So finally, at the end, as Madame got madder and madder, Edwin one day got up the nerve and said, "Uh." Where is the étranger from? And Madame spit out the words. She said, "Elle de Bézier. Bézier's like twelve right, miles right away outside Paris from somewhere. Right? They're like that, and they're, it's just magnified. Now. And it's just magnified. What they say about the French is that their glorious moment, their paradise, is the, the way they put it is famille repas, meaning the family, all of it together to eat together. It can be no better for them." Right, and any uh, stranger is a threat to that in yeah, some way. Sure. How would you? It's interesting that you chose them to concentrate on. But h- how do you? So you you've made sort of some reference to the world now and the parallels that exist. I see them for sure. In fact, I had I wrote something the other day on on Twitter as I was reading A Hero of France, which was you know every time I read your books, I I ask myself the question, you know, what would I have done? I mean, I was born a Jew. I'm an atheist, but I was born a Jew. So when they decide to go killing the Jews again, they don't they don't really care that I'm an atheist. Uh, I'm I'm, no, I'm no. marching right, right. I'm getting on the train. Right. And and so the decision becomes easier for me. Um I would have to resist. But I I do ask myself, you know, what what is a definition of heroism that's a working definition for you? I mean, what do you think are how do you define it as you think about it? Whew. I'm not sure I can really do that. In some sense, all that comes to me is to determine to defy those who would dominate you. That's a hero. Who would dominate you or you, you and yours? You and, you and yours, your people, your country. No, we're not going to let them do this. And this happened again and again during World War II. When Italy, when Mussolini's troops invaded Greece, the histories say, however... 
The Greeks fought to the death, and the Italians couldn't tolerate that at all. They ran away. They didn't want to fight with people who were going to fight to the death. Fighting to the death, that's heroism. It's clear that your characters don't consider themselves heroes. You consider them heroes. I consider them heroes. But they don't consider themselves heroes. No, never, never. When they ask the French who served in some of these resistance lines out of the country, why why did you join up? You know what the answer was after the war in most cases? Because I was asked. It's not the answer you expect. Right. It's not duty I had. No, no, no. If you give people an opportunity to serve... They want to serve. They want to do the right thing. And they know what the right thing is. They're not in doubt. Is that what you see now, though, here? I mean... I begin to see it in some ways. This is very confusing times here in the U.S. We're going many different ways at once. It will all have to clarify and sort itself out. I I wouldn't know what else to say. But, I mean, do do you feel like we still live in a culture that values sacrifice or that holds... To any of these noble ideas. Like as you're writing these books and you have readers who clearly, it's not just that these books have a, this romantic idea in them about purpose and duty. They do stir in the reader a desire to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. Because they're meant to. your character, like the moral, it goes back to your moral purpose. They're me- you're meant to. I, I am an entertainment writer. I like to call myself a novelist of consolation. If you want to feel good, read one of my books. If you want to feel terrible, read a whole lot of other books that people are writing. Now, I don't do that. I take you for a ride, starting with the cover, the maps, the title of the first chapter. I will never leave you alone. I will manipulate you brutally in every possible way with every possible word for the next 280 pages and I won't stop. I don't want you to stop and think about it. I want you to be absorbed, sucked into it, going over one horizon after the other. That's how I like books. That's how I started reading books. Yes. But how do you square that with this idea of a moral purpose? Because yes, you were an entertainment writer, but I I also wonder if in the same way your characters don't define themselves as of noble purpose, if you can't write books that have at the beating heart of them what yours have without also wanting to ask us to ask certain questions of ourselves, I don't think. Can you? I mean, I, I mean, look at the way I look at it. I've read so much about the period, so much about how people made choices about what they were going to do again and again and again. And they often made the courageous choice or they froze. And and that is that's really the you know the the death if you do that you have to act if you think something's wrong you better do something about it right yeah well you could see the moment there are a few moments in this book I don't want to I won't give them away but where you can someone is clearly told to act in a certain way and they couldn't in the moment they froze and bad things happen as a result of that um, but do you do you feel we still live in a culture I want to ask you to again that values sacrifice or that holds to any of these ideas yes. I do. It but depends. You have to look for it. Um, you have to read about people who go out and do the most amazing things in other countries. Uh, I was just reading about somebody who works saving young people in Israel and Palestine at the same time, et cetera, and so forth. And it's just great that he's doing that. He happens to be somebody a friend of mine knows. Um, but you read about them all the time. And, and it should be that kids go, I want to be like that. I want to be that person. 
I want to be the person that saves the day. I want to be the agricultural expert who goes and invents the new kind of rice in the Sudan. So you have hope. You still have hope for the society we're in. In other words, even though you write about this this time from of 60, 70, 80 years ago, you still have hope that people can can act in the way that you I hope so. I don't want to live in the or die in the middle of the devolution of American society. Thank you, no. No, I'm hoping we'll be okay. But then there are times when I'm really like, oh, man, this is really terrible. Are you ever tempted to write about now? No. Nope. Not me. Everything I have to say is in those books. I am not a pundit. I don't want to be a pundit. I've had plenty of opportunities to write op-ed pieces in the Times, but I don't believe I have anything to say that's worthwhile. So why do you think the written word still matters? Like, what is the writer's place in the, in the world? The writer's place is to write. I mean, look at how much people write every day. They may write Twitter. They may write blogs. They may write this. They may write novels. People are driven to communicate. And that's, and you feel, that's a very you feel basic, driven. You feel oh, driven to communicate. Yeah, sure. But it's also the way I make a living. Okay, let's let's not lose sight of that. It's a big motive for me. This is how I earn my living, and I earn a very good living. Right, and also you weren't earning a good living for a long time. No, so I have how, scar how, tissue. How old from were you that. before you knew you were okay? That this was all going to work out. Fifty something. Right, that's a long time to keep at this game. Oh yes, to not know. Oh yes, but I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm nuts. <laughs> I'm crazy as a loon. I won't give up. Um, I'm one of the people that don't give up. Yeah, you're in the way that your your characters are. So what what is your like creative routine? It's clear. I was going to ask you how to keep yourself motivated, but I understand that now. But what is the routine by which you do this work? I, I thought realized I just read Hero of France, and I thought, oh, that book's probably you're probably halfway into the next one by now. I'm I'm thinking about the next one. <laughs> I take a quite a while to think about things. I do not want to make certain kinds of missteps that I know to be fatal. Not fatal to a book, but fatal to peace of mind while writing a book. Yes. And that's happened to me. And Where you mean you went off in a direction? I did something wrong. When you say you're thinking about it, does that mean you're journaling about it? You're outlining it? Or do you just wander around? I wander around. I make notes in the margins of crossword puzzles. Really? Yeah, I make notes while I'm watching baseball at night. And you've trust now that that you're going to think of the that the books. Oh, the book will come. The book will oh. it'll form ahead of. But I'm, I'm, I'm I guess what I'm asking is, do you start with a world? Do you start with a character? How do you know when you're ready to begin? Do I, you outline? I try to outline. It never works. What does that I, mean? I'm, How far do you get? Sixty pages finished. <laughs> you mean you you sixty pages into the book, not a sixty page outline. You get 60 pages into the book and you go, screw this, I'm just going to no, write no, the damn thing? No, no, not screw this, I'm done. I've said, you know, I've, I've written the whole outline and now <laughs> there's no more. Really? I'm a very, um, what's the word? I write real fast. I'm a very compressed writer. So I get through a lot very, very quickly because I think the three, four word sentence is the answer. I love that. I love to work that way. And do you rewrite? I mean, so do you write every, when you're writing the book? Are you writing every morning? Do you get up yeah. and start? Oh, oh yeah, no, that's production writing. So what does that mean, production writing? It means I write two pages a day. No matter what? No matter what. 
and I, I, I once you start writing. So right now you're not writing. Two I'm pages not writing. Ri- I'm not writing right now. I, the way I work is I do six pages. I do third revision of of three days ago. I do second revision of two days ago, and then I write new material or first and second, however however it works out. And then, but I do my creative writing in about fifteen twenty minutes at the end. So you write your two pages last. The new pages, yeah. And you don't revise them on the same day. You no. just blast through the two pages. I blast through. I just write down whatever I think. So you write five hundred. You basically write five hundred words. That's what Hemingway said. You have to yeah. write. Yeah, and that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. To me, that's the best book on Hemingway on writing. The collected interviews. I recommend all the time to people. It's you my know, favorite thing ever. He, he's wonderful. He's absolutely wonderful. There are people who, who scoff at him, you know, but they. Well, it's really scoff. cool to scoff uh, at Hemingway, but then you go back and read, and or to say only the short stories, right? But go, go back and read the go, Sun Also Rises. Go and, back and read some of those books, man, and we'll see. We'll see what you feel like. Well, after yeah, that. box with as he would say, you know, fight with the dead guy. Go ahead and fight with him and see what happens. But so you will revise, revise, and then create these two new. Right, pages. it all happens on the revision. And so you're at your desk for how many hours a day? Oh, about, I can stand about three and a half. That's about what I can do. Then I just can't do it anymore. You begin to lose concentration. I concentrate so hard. I can't eat anything till four o'clock in the afternoon. So you get up and do your work and that's it. I get up and I have a writer's breakfast, coffee and cigarettes. And then um, I sit there and write, listen to the radio. You know, I have radio turned down to a jazz streaming station on the computer and um, I write on a typewriter. You do. A version of the IBM Selectric called a Lex, Lex, uh, Lex, I can't think what it's called. But in any event, yeah, I write, I like writing on a typewriter. I don't like writing on a computer, not creative writing, because that, that computer doesn't belong to you. You're lucky if uh, Bill Gates didn't come in there last <laughs> night and change a few things. You know. So you, the, the new pages are on a typewriter and the revisions too? Everything. Or you, you're not inputting it into a computer? No, I'm going to have to eventually. But My publisher's going to make me do it, no, but I, I'll no, I won't do it. I'll do it at the very end when I have a completely good hard copy. Then I will give. Then it you will some, type it in, or someone will type it in. Somebody the computer. type it in. I'm not going to type on the computer that much. I can't do it. You're My done. Fingers are too. So then that's on. you're done then. I'm done, but I will revise a little bit um, in the editorial process. How do you recognize when the idea that comes to you for the book is sort of uh, the right idea? How do you know? Because people ask about novels or like long screenplays, you know, how do you separate, oh, that's a fun idea it, uh, from that's the next book? You feel it eventually, but you, it takes time. You have, to, you have to live with this idea and see how well you like it. And when you write about something in it, you get this little bubble right about here. And, that, and, and, you, and once you get that, you know you're where you belong. If it's all speculative and in your head, don't don't do that. Forget that. It has to be physical. You you. It's an emotional and physical response, and you go, aha, that's it. Gotcha. I can't think of a better way to end. Um, <laughs> everybody gotcha. Everybody uh, should go. If you don't know Alan First's uh, books, buy the new one so that uh, everybody feels good about the new book. Then go buy the first one and read up to the new one. The, even though they're not chrono, they're not chronological it's not a series like a series of detective books you want to take in the sweep of this entire thing it is alan you're one of the few writers uh, uh 
I had Ethan Kanan on here and he's somebody I also do this with where I, I will read the book the, the day that it comes out, the day I can get my, my hands on it. Uh, your work means that much to me. So thank you. thanks for coming in. Thank you. And uh, having this conversation and, and get to writing the next one. I, I will. I need I'm it. working on it. I'm working on it. Okay. Right, great. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Oh, are you on social media? Can people find you anywhere? I have a website and they can write to me on the website. Ma- Random House maintains a Facebook page for but me. But it's not for you. You don't do it? No, I don't. I mean, I, I make occasional What's the website? Alan at alanfirst.com. Alanfirst.com or alan at alanfirst.com. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, go read Alan First books. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.